0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk tonight about the problem of evil. And when we talk about the problem of evil, there are are various things we might mean by it. We can distinguish different different problems of evil, if you will. Um, There's what we might think of as the existential or personal problem of evil, the question of how do we respond to evil in our own lives, Um, and if we believe in God, how do we relate to God in the midst of our own suffering, right? There's what we might think of as the pastoral problem of evil. How do we comfort those or attend to those others uh, in our lives and in the world who uh, experience and suffer from evil? Pastoral problem. And then there's the theoretical problem of evil. And the theoretical problem of evil is the one that I want to focus on uh, mostly tonight, though I may say a few things at the end about the existential problem. The theoretical problem of evil is a, is a kind of intellectual problem about whether or not the existence of evil of the, the kind and quantity and types we find in the world is consistent with compatible with the existence of God. You could think of it, if you want, is, is a potential kind of objection to the existence of God that takes the evil we find in the world as evidence against God's existence. And in fact, uh, many people have, whether kind of very self-consciously or maybe more implicitly, I think, taken evil uh, as, uh, as a reason to doubt the existence of God. And it's an ancient problem. It, I mean, it goes all the way back to the beginnings you know, of finding early Western thought and so forth. And it's very much a contemporary problem. But probably a lot of people who, are, uh, who don't believe in God, whether they be you know, pro- pro- professional philosophers uh, to just a, an ordinary person on the street. One of the reasons they might not give for their disbelief or their doubt is the evil we find in world. And we can think about it then as the theoretical problem of evil as a kind of argument against God's existence. Um, and it, we can put it in various different ways, but I think this way is, is representative. It starts off with, with certain claims about what it would mean to say that God exists. Um, what are some of the attributes of God? Uh, if God exists, then, uh, and uh, most theists, maybe all theists are going to want to say, then God is all good and all-powerful. Well, what does that mean? Well, you might think if God is all-good, if you've got a wholly good being, you've got a being who is going to eliminate evil as far as he can. On the other hand, if you have an all-powerful being, if God is all-powerful, then there are no limits to what God can do. Or, or you might say at least no non-logical limits. I think most people who think of God as all-powerful still think that doesn't mean God can make like a square circle or something that is just logically contradictory, but but anything that doesn't involve logical contradiction, you might think God has the power to do. So if he's all-good, he eliminates evil as far as he can. If he's all-powerful, there are no limits to what he can do. But then you might think, well, look, uh, if God eliminates evil as far as he can, and there are no limits to what god can do then there just wouldn't be any evil but of course alas there is evil isn't there right and so what follows from all of that the non-existence of god so how should we respond to such an argument how should somebody who believes in god respond to it or how, how might someone who's not sure whether they believe in god uh, wrestle with such an argument the inferences, I think, are, are, are valid inferences. So if there's a problem with this argument, the problem is gonna have to be with one of the premises. Right? And what, what I wanna do is, is, is suggest what some of those problems uh, might be uh, here tonight, uh, and, and do so relying a, a fair amount on, as you might expect from the talk from the Thomistic Institute, St. Thomas Aquinas as at least a kind of inspiration uh, for our, our going at, at this problem. When people are thinking about uh, the problem of evil, they usually distinguish between two types of evil, two fundamental types. Moral evil, or what we might call evil done, and natural evil, or evil suffered. Moral evil is uh, evil uh, that uh, is is, uh, our own fault, where we freely do something uh, that we uh, shouldn't do, or we fail to do something that we should do. It's moral a wrongdoing, uh, or, or a sin, if you like. Natural evil, on the other hand, is when there's some sort of harm to, 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 uh, to something. When something is harmed in some way, it could, could be a human being, it could be something else, it's harmed in such a way, it's deprived of something that is, uh, that is good for it. That's natural evil, okay? Natural evil, Uh, The way I'm gonna understand it, it it could have its sources in moral evil. So the harm that someone experiences or suffers, or that something experiences and suffers, may have its cause in moral wrongdoing, or it may have a natural cause, like in the case of of, of cancer, let's say, or some, some other natural cause, okay? So, responses to the problem of evil are usually going to have to deal in some way with both of these different types of evil, and we're gonna look at both of those types tonight, we're gonna focus probably a bit more on natural evil than on moral evil, but we're going to to, uh, have something to say about both of them. Before getting much further, I think it's worth thinking a little bit about Questions about uh, the burden of proof when you're thinking about an argument like this. If if we understand the theoretical problem of evil really to be an argument against God's existence, then I think the person giving the argument has the burden of proof, right? I'd say the argument itself has the burden of proof of of showing that there really isn't very good reason uh, or very plausible reason why God might forbid the sorts of evil we find in the world, right? In responding to the argument from evil, my own view is that uh, it's enough if we can come up with some plausible reasons why God might permit, a good God, an all-powerful God, might permit the sort of evil we find in the world. I don't think we have to be uh, committed to these reasons that we point to being definitely exactly the reasons God permits evil. I mean, maybe we're not really sure at the end of the day exactly why God permits the evil he does. And it seems like you could respond to this argument simply by coming up with some plausible possibilities. And I think that's especially true if we have some independent reason for thinking that God exists, as I think we do. I think that there's some good arguments for God's existence. I think there's good, positive reason for thinking that God exists independently of questions about evil. And so I especially think the burden is sort of uh, on, on the one who would think we, we, we overturn all of that uh, positive evidence for God's existence by, by looking at evil uh, to, to establish that there isn't a reason God might, uh, might prevent that evil that we find. Okay? Well, I want to uh, turn then to a passage that I think is, is suggestive. I don't know if, you've, if any of you have read much St. Thomas. I mean, he's, he's often. He's very brief. He doesn't, he doesn't waste a lot of words, right? He'll often say something in a very compact way that is quite suggestive, but he doesn't elaborate very much. And I think that's what you find in this passage and in others where St. Thomas is talking about the problem. But let's look at this. He says, many good things would be taken away. Many good things would be taken away if God permitted no evil to exist. For fire would not be generated if error was not corrupted. Nor would the life of a lion be preserved unless the ass were killed. Neither would avenging justice nor the patience of a sufferer be praised if there were no injustice. So he's giving some examples here, and some of the examples may sound a little strange to you at first. I'm not sure, but but the upshot of this is is that it may be that you you just can't get rid of certain evils without simultaneously giving up certain goods. It may be that you just can't get rid of certain evils without sacrificing or sacrificing the possibility of certain goods at the same time. And if that's the case, it may be that an all-powerful, all-good God would be willing to permit or tolerate the evils in question for the sake of the, of the goods the present wanted to see go or get rid of out of his creation, you see that? So if we go back to this, the argument that we looked at earlier, the presentation of the, the theoretical problem of evil or uh, the argument from evil against God's existence, we might ask ourselves which premise of this argument is St. Thomas suggesting that we would reject and you all probably have, have thoughts on that or can probably guess, I think he would go after the second premise, right? I think he said, look, it's, it's not at all obvious that if, that if God is all good, that he eliminates evil as far as he can. Why not? Because it may mean that he can't eliminate certain evils without giving up certain goods that he wants. And so he may commit certain evils for the sake of of those goods. So I want to suggest that that's at least one general approach or direction for responding to this argument from evil, and now I want to move into some some more details about how that would go with respect to natural evil, how that would go with respect to moral evil. So why might God permit natural evil? That is, uh, things being harmed in various ways, suffering harm, being deprived of that which is is good for them. Why might he commit that? Yeah. And I want to suggest three reasons. The first of which I think is going to be the one that is going to take the most time to unpack, and that the other two, which I think follow, are, can, can follow more quickly. The first reason is I'm suggesting I think I think Thomas St. Thomas thinks that natural evil just comes along with creating a particular sort of good, uh, the good of a material universe. Or the good of a material ecosystem, if you will, the natural evil just comes along with that. If you're going to create the good of a material universe, you're going to create something where you're going to be permitting some natural evil. Okay. The second uh, reason I want to talk about is uh, the idea that God permits natural evil in order that we not become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. But we might become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. And third, uh, you might commit natural evil in order to make possible uh, moral and spiritual goods of a certain sort, which presuppose natural evil. So let me begin with this first this, this idea that, that natural evil uh, comes along with creating the good of a material universe or ecosystem, and I think, To begin with, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about the kinds of things that that exist in a material universe. The different kinds of material objects or material substances, to use a philosophical term. And then to think a little bit about why, or at least why Aquinas thinks, God creates such objects in the first place. So, fundamental kinds of material things. So, they're, they're non living material substances, right? There, there are things like fire and water and the elements on the periodic table and so on. Okay? Non-living material substances. Then there's what we might think of as the most basic level of living, uh, of, of living things, living uh, material substances. They have the most, the most basic powers that, that would belong to something insofar as we want to say that it's alive, capable of taking in nutrition and of, of growing. And of reproducing, we might call these vegetative life forms. It would include things like plants, right, and, and trees, and and you know single-celled organisms, and so forth. These are presumably non-sentient uh, life forms. They're living things, but they're non-sentient in, in the sense that they don't have they don't have the sensory powers, and they can't they can't sort of feel things really because they're non-sentient. Unlike what we might think of is, is the next level of living things, next level up, animals, right? Because animals have not only these powers of nutrition, growth, and reproduction, but they also have the powers of sensation. Uh, and they can experience things like desire and pleasure and pain. And then there's a very uh, special kind of animal, the rational animal, or human being, which has these kinds of, of powers, but also, uh, reason and will, right? The ability to understand the world through reason, to intellectually grasp the world, right? And to, to will things, that is, to, to desire or to pursue that which is understood through reason. So we have different kinds of, of material of material things. Why does God create? Why does God create it all? And why does God create material things of, of such different kinds? And here, I I want us to look at a passage from from St. Thomas that that, I think is is interesting. It's a a long passage. I'm going to break it up into three parts. So, Thomas tells us that God brought things into being, created things, in order that his goodness might be communicated to creatures and be represented by them. So he creates, he creates in the first place, in order to share his goodness. God is... Infinitely good contains the fullness of perfection of goodness, and he creates in order to share that goodness. Uh, Not out of any need that he has, but but simply out of generosity, in order to share goodness with other things, to communicate that goodness to them, and then those things, in, in being good themselves, right, will reflect or represent or participate, share in God's goodness. That's why he creates, Mines says. Now, he goes on, he says, because his, because God's goodness could not be adequately represented or reflected by one creature, he produced many and diverse creatures, that what was wanting to one in the representation of the divine goodness might be supplied by another. Hence, the whole universe together participates in the divine goodness more perfectly and represents it better than any single creature, whatever. So why doesn't God just create one thing or one sort of thing? Well, because one sort of thing is that we can't reflect or represent or share in the divine goodness uh, fully enough or not as well as a bunch of sort of things. Right, I mean, think about I mean the way the way something like fire, fire is a creature, right? It's something that God creates. And the way that fire reflects the divine goodness of my space is gonna be different from the way that water reflects from the, the divine goodness, which is gonna be different from the way that a walleye reflects the divine goodness, which is gonna be different from the way that uh, you know, a cow or in Minnesota reflects, I mean, we're no, in Wisconsin, same, same difference, right, as far as that goes, reflects the divine goodness. Right? All of these things are able, given their natures, to reflect the divine goodness in, in a particular way that the other sorts of things can't, right? And the thought here is that if God is, is creating in the first place in order to share his goodness, in order that his goodness might be reflected in things, that goodness is shared more fully and reflected more fully and is creating lots of different things, a diversity and multiplicity of things, right? And even things, that are of different sort of grades or types or levels. So he says, natural things seem to be arranged in degrees. We saw that on on the previous slide, didn't we? We were looking at the different forms of, different types of material beings. They seem to be arranged in in degrees, so mixed things are more perfect than, than the elements. Plants, more perfect than minerals. Animals, more perfect than plants men more perfect than other animals. And each of these one species or types of things or natures is more perfect than the other. Therefore, as the divine wisdom is the cause of the distinction of things for the sake of the perfection of the universe, so it's the cause of this inequality, this differentiation of grades of things. For the universe would not be perfect if only one grade of goodness were found in things. So there's, there's a greater sharing of the divine goodness, and a greater reflection of that goodness in creatures uh, by there being a diversity, a multitude of different sorts of things, and a multitude of different brains or different levels of, of, of good things, right? And so, a class would think there'd be reason for God to create all those sorts of material objects that we saw, because material objects, just in general, reflect the divine goodness and have a share in that goodness, and different kinds are reflected in different ways, right? And all of that taken together is a more perfect reflection of the divine goodness than any one taken individually or singly. Okay, so what does all this have to do to, to the claim that that, uh, that natural evil just sort of comes along with the good of a material universe or ecosystem? because that's really the, the, the first point in response to the problem of natural evil. Yeah, the natural evil just comes along with the good of, of material universe. Well, I mean, just, this is a kind of cryptic remark. Uh, Thomas, you mind, might, when might, I mean, he's talking about evil, why is he talking about you know, fire not being generated if air was not corrupted? Maybe when you're thinking of the great evils of the world, you're not typically thinking about airs being corrupted by the generation of fire, right? And maybe it doesn't rank up there among the highest evils in the world. And yet, a we view is, is, is an instance of natural evil, and it's important to hear this point, because when we're talking about the most lo- sort of low-level kind of material objects, or the highest level material objects, it's of the very nature of material things, right? It's the very nature of material things that they are vulnerable to decay and corruption. That's I mean that's just part of what it is to have a, to be a material thing or have a material nature. The very nature of material things to be vulnerable to decay and corruption, and in a world of interacting material objects, right? A, a world of the sort that we have, and of the sort that you know will be of interest to scientists and so forth. In a world of interacting material objects. The action of some objects, the action of some objects, deprives, corrupts, uses up other objects. And that is is just part of the nature of the kind of reality we're talking about, material reality. So here, right, uh, the oxygen is is consumed, used up, right, by, by the burning of the flame. The action of the flame. Right, uses up and corrupts the oxygen uh, and, and, and makes it no more. A lion would cease to live if there were no slaying of animals, right? The action of the lion, which is good for the lion and is part of what it is to be a thriving lion, right, is to be a great hunter, right? It's part of the majesty of the, of the, of the, of the species, of the animal. But it, it, that lion flourishes. Uh, at the expense of its prey, doesn't it, right? Um, just like fire like flourishes, if you will, does its thing, does its fire thing at the expense of, of oxygen, a lion flourishes at the expense of its prey. So, such is the way of material things and interacting material objects. When we get this you know, full picture, you know, think of, of, of plants here, right? They're being fed on by, by, by the fish. Right, but the small fish, and the small fish are <laughs> eaten by bigger fish. And then the birds are eating fish and snakes and, and so forth. And you've got this whole ecosystem of interacting material objects where uh, they're all, by their very nature, they're all, because they're material, they're vulnerable to corruption and decay. And they're also capable of flourishing, of living of a of good life and doing good frog things, right? Doing good fish things, right? But, but the good that they do often comes at the expense of something else within the system. Aquinas says corruption and defects, right? we might say natural evils, in natural things are said to be contrary to some particular nature, yet they are in keeping with the plan of universal nature inasmuch as the defect in one thing yields to the good of another. Since then, God provides universally for all being, it belongs to his providence to permit to permit certain defects, in particular effects, particular creatures, that the perfect good of the universe may not be hindered, for if all evil were prevented, much good would be absent from the universe. So there's a real defect here, real harm here, a real natural evil, right? In in the plant that is being yeah, becomes dinner for the fish, right? Or in the small fish that becomes dinner for the for the large fish. And those are those are genuine evils, genuine corruptions or genuine harms to those things. But God permits that for the sake of the good of the whole material nature as a whole, and for the sake of the good of the other things in material nature that flourish, right, as is, is it were, uh, at, the, at the expense of, of, of other things within that, uh, within that system. Well, it raises a question that we might ask. It is just built into the nature of, of material reality, that, is, that material things are subject to decay and corruption, and that in an interacting material world involves some things flourishing at the expense of others, Maybe God should not have created a material world in the first place. That's a question we could ask. I mean, I think today is, the you know, Catholic Church is, uh, celebrates the Feast of the Archangels, right? So it's kind of fitting here. We've got one of them, Gabriel, here. Maybe God should have just created the angels, only angels, purely spiritual beings. Not an angel, right, I mean, I know this doesn't look like a purely spiritual being, right, because it's got like a body and and wings and so forth, and our representations of angels don't really match what they really are. What an angel really is, is a a purely spiritual, non-material being, And, and because of that, it's not subject to corruption. An angel isn't subject to corruption and decay in the way that material things are. And so maybe God should have just created angels. Um, I mean, the uh, half the Christian tradition says God did create angels. He created lots of them, many, many angels. But maybe he should have just stopped there and not created the material world. So, no non living material substances like fire and water and yellowness <laughs> are periodic table. No plants or non sentient life forms. No animals no human beings, no material creation. Maybe God should have done that. We might ask ourselves, would it have been better for God not to have created trees, trees which are vulnerable right, uh, to corruption and decay, or, or non-living uh, substances like fire, whose action right, can harm trees. Maybe God shouldn't have created trees and fire. Uh, would it have been better for God not to have created lions and wildebeests? Because both creatures, material creatures, that are vulnerable to corruption and decay, the wildebeest in particular, right, if, uh, at the expense of the thriving of the lion. Wouldn't it have been better for God not to have created such things? would it have been better uh, for God not to have created human beings? Because we're vulnerable to the corruption and decay from various sources said, right? Um, or substances like water, whose actions can harm human beings? Would it have been better? Sometimes I think people imagine, uh, like wouldn't it have been nice for God, we like the, the material world, we like our ecosystem, right? We're an environmental studies major for crying out loud, right? We like this, right? We, we like to, to spend uh, our vacations walking around and enjoying nature. Uh, couldn't we have just created couldn't and just have all of that without natural evil, right? And I think twice will say, well, not really, right? Um, natural evil just comes with uh, a material creation. You could ask the question, well, maybe God shouldn't have created a material universe. He, maybe he should have just left it with the angels. But if he's gonna create a material universe, you're good the good of a material universe, it's going to have natural evil as an accompaniment. So should we have created a material universe or not? Well, I just, I mean, from my, my own view, it, it isn't, it's certainly not obvious to me that God would have been better off not to have created a material universe. The material universe is pretty awesome, actually, right? In my opinion, there's a lot of good stuff in there, right? Despite the fact that what comes along with it is, is, is uh, natural evil, right? So it certainly doesn't seem obvious anyway uh, to me, Uh, that that God should have refrained from creating a material universe just because it has natural evil as its accompaniment. It seems quite plausible to me that God thinks a material universe is pretty awesome, right? I'm gonna create it even though that's going to involve permitting certain natural evil. Well, what about the fall, right? There's some story about that somewhere back there. I mean, didn't natural evil enter the world uh, with, with the fall, with Adam and Eve's, you know, their, their first sin, right? Uh, and they're being evicted, right, from, from the Garden of Eden. Nice picture here of the fall. He's got, he's got the apples here. Uh, you got a lion and a lamb hanging out like with some buddies over here on the side. Well, Thomas has some interesting thoughts on this. First of all, he, he doesn't think that, uh, that there was no natural evil before the fall. He thinks that you know, plants and, and animals, non rational animals, would have would have suffered corruption and decay, which is just part of what it is to be those sorts of things ultimately. That's part of the natural life of any material object. You see that? So I mean, despite the, the, the image here, right, um, he would have thought that lions you know, were still carnivores and would, would eat other animals prior to the fall, that that wasn't something that entered in only uh, after the fall. It's a little different with human beings, okay? Aquinas and, and, and Catholic tradition, Christian tradition, thinks that human beings, like any other material object, is naturally susceptible, vulnerable to, to natural evil harm, but that before the fall, God gave special graces that protected them from natural evil. He was, God was under no obligation to give that special protection from natural evil to human beings. It's part of human nature to be vulnerable to natural evil, but in the garden, he gave, and not only did he uh, create us with grace, supernatural grace, uh, directing us towards ultimate union with God, but he also protected us from natural evil. You know, it giving us gifts beyond what we're due to us given our nature, and that, but that at the fall, after the fall, those gifts, uh, that those special protections from natural evil were withdrawn. Okay. Now, I want to I want to suggest that God's withdrawing that protection from natural evil after the fall can be understood not only as as a punishment but also actually is a great mercy for reasons that we'll see here as we move to a second point about why God natural evil, which is um, that we not become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. Now this picture here, that looks like heaven, doesn't it? Maybe none of the rest of you would be tempted if you were this guy to think you were in heaven. I I would find myself quite tempted, right? Looks pretty sweet. The natural world and creation has so much good in it, really, that it would be very possible uh, sort of to, to be tempted into, to becoming quite satisfied simply in the enjoyment of the things in this world, especially if you're this right? There doesn't seem to be a lot of natural evil here around, at least not at the, at the moment, right? Maybe on the horizon there's some sort of hurricane coming in, but it looks right, not right there. Does God want us? Right to become complacent, satisfied in the enjoyment just of the things of this world of created things. Well, not not if, if the Christian tradition uh, is right that what God that our home is ultimately union with God, friendship with God in heaven, and not the, the various different enjoyments we can take, various goods of this world, whether they be comfort, comfort, creaturely pleasures, uh, wealth. Honor, power, whatever that may be, that's not where our good lies. Right? And if we if we are in a situation where we can be tempted into becoming complacent with those goods of worldly things, right, then that is a huge obstacle or distraction from us attaining the ultimate happiness of good that God created us for. So one reason uh, God might permit natural evil is that we not become so uh, tempted, if you will. Uh, tempted to uh, to complacency and enjoyment in the things of this world. We all experience uh, natural evil, some of us more than others. If we don't experience ourselves, we witness others experiencing it. And even with all of that, right, it's tempting. A, a lot of us uh, struggle not to, to avoid becoming complacent and satisfied with the things of this world. Um, the, but the, the, the evil, the natural evil we find in this world uh, is, is at least makes us think a little twice about that. It makes us point, look out in a different direction for, for ultimate and happiness. The direction we need to look, right? Uh, given what we were created for, which is ultimately for union with God. Now, this, and this is, I think, especially the case after the fall, after, after our break with God, Uh, At the fall, um, we're all the more inclined, I think, to seek our happiness in worldly things. And therefore, it's actually merciful for God to permit natural evil if natural evil can shake up our complacency and and have our eyes directed uh, towards towards God. Well, you find these kinds of sentiments uh, in in great figures of the tradition here uh, saint thomas is quoting uh saint gregory the great the evils which weigh us down here drive us to go to god right going to god is a good thing right um uh a class uh, will will think and gregory will think and so if the, if the evils serve that purpose then they're they're serving a, a good purpose actually within divine providence St. Augustine has similar points that he makes here. He's talking, this is from his uh, biography, autobiography, Biography of the Confession, some of you may have read or read parts of it, where he's, he's reflecting on his life uh, prior to his final commitment to God and, and to Christianity. And he's looking back on it, and he's, he's, he's totally invested in seeking happiness in the things of this world. And he talks about how God sprinkles the most bitter vexations over all of these joys taken in worldly things, right? And, that, and, and and these sufferings, he, he subjected Augustine to, which Augustine understands to actually have been a, a, a great mercy. In your mercy, right, you were raging against me in your mercy and scattering the most bitter vexations over all my illicit joys, so that I would look for a joy that had no vexation, and find that I can have none outside of you, O Lord, outside of you, who makes suffering into a teacher and strike in order to heal and kill us, lest we do not die apart from you. And it's a, it's a, it's a very scriptural I- idea here, too. Hebrews 12:6, the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every child whom he receives. And why does he discipline us? And, and how does he discipline us? Often it's through our, our suffering. He does that. S- scripture seems to be saying out love in order to direct us back uh, to him. Just a third thought on why why uh, God might commit natural evil. Right? Natural evil might uh, make possible certain moral and spiritual goods, which presuppose natural evil. I mean, you might think it know who these folks who are. Most of you do. Who says? Mother Teresa, yeah, the St. Danians of Molokai, right? But both are uh, heroic in the the acts of charity they exhibited in response to human suffering. You know about Mother Teresa, I assume, St. Teresa of Calcutta, St. Damien. anybody know this story? Yeah, he went to like, live on a leprechaun to serve, serve them, right? And, and, and meet all their kinds of their needs spiritual emotional uh, material needs and he eventually is was, was pretty predictable caught up himself and died right speaking speaking of this sort of a, a martyr of charity for that that reason okay these are dramatic right heroic examples of, of charity which are um, are are, Possible, in a, in a world that contains natural evil of the sort that we have, right? and maybe that's uh, among the reasons God permits natural evil, is He wants to that those exhibitions of, of, of heroic saintly uh, charity. So a number of reasons here why God might permit natural evil, and uh, I don't think these are, are mutually exclusive. I mean, they might they they're they're compatible, right? It might be. That God permits natural evil for all of these reasons, right? It, it seems part and though, if He wants to create the good of the material universe, it seems like natural evil is going to come along with it. But you might think, well, on top of that, right, it has this uh, positive role that it helps keep us from becoming complacent, right, in the enjoyment of the things of this world, and it, it makes possible great, saintly, heroic actions of this sort. I wanted to. I say one quick thing about. Uh, I'm going to go quickly through the moral evil part, but just I thought I would point out something from the Christian tradition here. Um, is that um, if if creating a material universe, right, even a cost of that, if you will, is that there's going to be some, certain natural evil, that, that the things of this universe are going to be harmed and suffer harm, right? Christian theology understands that uh, God doesn't leave his material creation alone, right, to suffer by themselves, but though purely incapable of suffering by his nature, takes on a human material nature and suffers with his creatures for their redemption. So he doesn't leave us to bear that cost on his own, but bears that cost uh, with us and and for us. Well, moral evil, a very common response to the problem of moral evil one that you have probably thought of yourself is that uh that it's it's neither for us to have morally significant freedom right we're going to have the ability to choose between good and evil to make good decisions to make bad ones uh, that god has to give us the freedom to do that and a lot of people think that what that means is that it's not really possible for god to ensure that we always do the good and never do the evil if he gives us freedom. And so he permits us to do evil because he wants us to have genuine freedom to do good. And that's a very common response to the problem of moral evil, one that a lot lot of, of people in the tradition have endorsed. It is a response that depends on a certain conception of human freedom that sees Human freedom is, is something that is sort of outside God's hands or outside God's control. So if God is going to give us freedom, he's going to put outside his hands or outside his control how we use that freedom. And a lot of people think that that's the right way to think about it. But a lot of people don't. I, I My own reading is that Thomas, uh, St. Thomas doesn't think that for God to give us human freedom means that he puts what we do with that freedom outside of his hands. My own reading is that Aquinas thinks that what we do still remains within his hands. And what what that seems to imply actually is that God could have created a world, he could have actually created a world in which we always freely choose the good. So why didn't he? And and there, the only answer that, that seems to be possible in this is that he permits us to choose evil Because it makes certain kinds of goods possible. And you find Aquinas saying this sort of thing. He says, Many goods are present in things which would not occur unless they were evils. For instance, there would not be the patience of the just if there were not the malice of their persecutors. There would not be a place for the justice of vindication if there were no offenses. This is a a contemporary philosopher who works in the the Thomistic tradition, Edward Phaser, who gives us some more examples, he points out that there are certain kinds of exercise of free will that presuppose the existence of people who choose evil. For example, acts of forgiveness and mercy are not possible unless there are people who actually do evil things for which they can be forgiven. For people freely choose to act in a forgiving and merciful way, if they do that, then it's, it's possible only in a world in which other people have actually chosen to do evil. So if 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 God wants to create a world in which heroic acts of mercy and forgiveness, and acts of justice too, perhaps, right, are not just possibilities but actualities, right? They're realized within his creation, then he's going to have to permit moral evil. Because without moral evil, there is aren't acts of forgiveness and mercy and so on. Some of you may You've been to the Easter Vigil Mass, right, on Holy Saturday at the beginning of the celebration of Easter, and if you remember the, the Great Easter Proclamation, the salted, right? Oh, happy fault, a oh, necessary sin of, of Adam, which gained for us so great a Redeemer, right? Some reflecting on this have thought, look, the the the, the act of, of God, the coming and and atoning for our sins and forgiving us. Is such a great boost to the value of of creation and reality as a whole that it will be something uh, worth permitting sin for in order that that be realized. So that's a line of thought that could be pursued, right? We we talked about natural evil, a couple of different lines of thought that could be pursued when thinking about moral evil. One line depends on the idea that if God is going to give us freedom, that place is outside of God's hands how we use that freedom. He's just going to have to forbid us to do evil if he's going to give us the freedom to choose between good and bad. And another which responds for the person who thinks, well, even our free choices are actually still in God's hands, but God might permit evil nevertheless in order that there be such goods as mercy and forgiveness, uh, atonement, and what have you. Okay. All right, I gonna wrap it up. I, I, I was gonna say some things about the existential problem of evil, but I can do that in, in the Q&A if, if we have time. I think we've seen here some possible reasons. God might permit natural evil, God might permit moral evil. Reasons, therefore, to, to doubt this second premise in the argument from evil. Our question is, does evil disprove God? And a key premise in the argument seems to be that if God is all good, he'll illuminate evil as far as he can, right? But if St. Thomas and others are right, that's not uh, honestly true. It's not necessarily things, because it may be that getting rid of certain evils means getting rid of certain goods, and that God, because he wants those goods, is willing to permit the evils that are part of that package, okay? So I'll leave it there. We, can, we have time for two and if you want to folks we can talk a little bit about the existential problem as well. Thank you. Yeah. This same uh if I say anything about uh, could God have created a universe that is better than this one, or is this the best yeah. universe God could have? Really That's a good question, yeah. He does say something about that, and he, his answer is, is, is nuance. But I think the upshot of it is that he thinks Arcanus couldn't could have created a, a better universe than this one. Right? Um, he thinks that, and, and here's, here's what he says he, he says, look, given God's power, given his power, and given his, his infinite power and goodness, for any universe that God can create, he is actually powerful and good enough to create a better one than that. So some philosophers have thought. That God has to create the, the best possible world. And Aquinas, I think, would resist that and say, well, it doesn't That's not doesn't make any sense because there, there really isn't the best possible world. For any any world God could create, he could actually create a better one. And so uh, what I think he's gonna end up saying is that God is would create a universe that is that is good, that is complete, that has a diversity of things that reflect the divine goodness, but he could always create another one than that. Yeah. Question. Yes? So, uh, this line of reasoning uh, seems to hold once we fix the definition of the set of things that are evil. We're effectively saying if inside that set there exists any particular evil that then entails that a good could come of it, we can then rephrase to as saying if God is all good, then he creates the most good or goodness itself, and that would then justify an evil. Oh, do we have an argument that could be constructed to say that there does not exist any definition of evil where that set of evil would not contain something that would entail a good? Uh, that's a good question. I've wondered something similar to that myself. I think answering that question is more challenging in some ways than trying to answer the problem that, that was before us. Because I think mean, all we have to do to answer the problem before us, I and mean, some people think, you know, yeah, once you fix the definition, yeah. it, it, it falls out uh, yeah. But we just got to talk about the evil that, that we see in this world, right? right? We don't have to talk about any possible evil. We just have to confront the evil that we actually find and ask ourselves, are there goods for the sake of which God might permit this evil? Whereas the question you're asking, if I understand it correctly, is like, for any possible evil would it be the case that there would be goods that For the sake of which God was permitted in the the entire system. And that's, I think, a lot harder. Yeah. Great question, though. Yeah. Yes? Um, So, regarding your first claim that in our world, evil inevitably comes with the goodness um, that God creates, would it be possible that we think that way because we've only lived in a world where that's the case? And would it be possible that we're Yeah. Arizona? Arizona? Good question. Yeah. I mean, it's always a good question to to wonder about, like, are there just limits to our ability to imagine or conceive of something? Yeah. Um, Here. So, I, I think, though, that when it comes to the nature of material creatures, I think it's just inbuilt into the concept of what it is for a substance to be material that he can undergo corruption and decay, okay? If a material creature was, was somehow, I mean, God maybe could somehow protect material creatures from corruption and decay like he did for human beings before the fall. But that would in a way be to give them something that is puts them outside of their sort of natural kind of existence, right? It would be, it would be to give them gifts that were beyond Anything that was due to the nature of them as material creatures. So we can debate about whether, all right, should God have just done that? Should He have continued after the fall to protect human beings from natural suffering? Should He have, even before the fall, protected, uh, you know, lions and plants from natural suffering? And you could ask that kind of question. He didn't do that at least, Thomas doesn't think should he have? And then there would be a, a discussion, I think, about that. Yes? So this is an argument. Against God's, God's existence, and I know it's one of the ones Aquinas himself gives as we went over. But what do you think is the best argument against God's existence, even if it isn't one of the ones that point to Yeah, I, I think probably the argument from evil, or maybe certain arguments that tried to say that the particular set of attributes that belong to God cannot all be held together at once, is something like this? So if you are, if you agree to a certain sort of attributes that would belong to anything that we call God, in a way the problem of people is, trying, is, is a version of that, but um, so for example, some people have argued against God by saying, well, God is supposed to have uh, knowledge of the future, but it's impossible in some way for God to not have knowledge of the future or at least all things in the future, and so God doesn't exist. So arguments along those lines. So, I'm not really persuaded by I haven't seen arguments of that sort that I've been persuaded by, but that would be another way to go. So uh, perhaps uh, generalizing this as an argument from incoherence? Yeah, yeah, If there's something incoherent about the concept of, of, of God, because we're saying X, Y, and Z are all true of God, but it's not possible for all these things to be true of any being in Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yes? Uh, so you said the one example of the natural world is that with the material world, there's coming natural people. So what does that mean in terms of the, I mean, having to be more in my body, if that's supposed to be, yeah, a great, you know, something maybe material, maybe that's so, Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, right? It's, it, I mean, It's going to be a different kind of materiality, apparently, right? So that we will have uh, bodies uh, that are that are uh, incorrupt, right? And so, what is what accounts for that, right? You might think what accounts for that is special kind of again braces or protection from corruption, or it may be that it's a different kind of of body or something or a different kind of materiality. so, but yeah, uh, I mean Aquinas' will thing that in the resurrection of, of the body, uh, if, at that point we do we will not uh, suffer and die again, right? I actually, I <clears throat> want to know about that a bit more. If you have the yes, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, all that, the thing, the main thing I wanted to say, you know, again, I mean, and, and this is a. a very much a kind of I think, uniquely Christian insight, and one that I think is emphasized most in the Catholic tradition. That yes, the existential problem is how should I respond to suffering in my own life, right? How should I respond to it? I think the the, the Christian answer is that suffering in your own life is one, very much to be expected. Two it is actually required. <coughs> of someone who followed Christ, and three is an opportunity to share in the priesthood of Christ. Jesus you know, told us in Luke and the passages in other gospels that are very similar, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If any man, if anybody would come after me, would follow me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. St. Paul, in Colossians says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In, in what sense are we, are we following Christ by denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily, right? Taking on these sufferings. How are we following Christ in doing that, exactly? Well, one way to think about how we're following Christ is we are, we can, like Christ, offer our sufferings for the salvation of souls, for the redemption of the world. And in doing that, it's one of the ways uh, we can share in Christ's priestly ministry. We can participate in that. And you, you see passages of this sort in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Right? Suffering can have a redemptive meaning. A redemptive meaning for the sins of others, not only your own sins, but can be offered for the sins of others and for their conversion. In union with the Passion of Christ, suffering acquires a new meaning. It becomes a participation in the saving work of Jesus. St. John Paul II has a whole encyclical on, on suffering. Savitici like dolores. Uh, he says, insofar as man becomes a sharer in Christ's sufferings, To that extent, in his own way, completes the suffering through which Christ accomplished the redemption of the world. Christ does not explain in the abstract the reasons for suffering, but before all else, he says, Follow me. Come, take part through your suffering in this work of saving the world. In the spiritual dimension of the work of redemption, the suffering faithful is serving, like Christ, the salvation of his brothers and sisters. Therefore, he is carrying out an irreplaceable service. I I don't know of a more profound, if this is true, I mean, I believe it is, but uh, a more profound answer to the existential problem of evil than this. That suffering is actually an opportunity uh, to share in the priesthood of Christ, to offer your suffering for the salvation of souls and the redemption of, of the world. There's a there's a piece I saw uh, by actually a woman I think from Milwaukee, Town, and it's possible some of so you know her, um, around these parts, where she's uh, reporting the advice she heard from a priest, and, uh, and the title of the article is Never Let uh, Never Let Your Suffering Go to Waste," right? So when when you are experiencing suffering or affliction or hardship, think at that moment, this is an opportunity. Pray about who you should offer that suffering for because you can actually offer it in union with Christ's suffering for the salvation of souls. So you want a a, a profound answer to the question, how should I respond to suffering in my own life, I think you got one uh, here, right? This is either like completely crazy nuts or like the most <laughs> profound thing imaginable, right? I'm hoping it's the most profound thing imaginable myself. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for coming out. Enjoy talking to you.